simply singing that. Truly. Let's open God's word together. We're in Matthew chapter 7. If you'll remain standing, we'll, we'll read God's word together. Matthew chapter 8, rather, verses 18 through 22. Short passage. You can follow along on the screen if you'd like, or if you brought your Bible, and I hope you did. Uh, please follow along. If you don't have a Bible, there's one in the pew back, and that's for you. Take it home with you. Read it, study it, highlight it, scribble in it, bring it back and ask questions. That's for you. That's God's Word. Hear now God's Word, Matthew 8, verses 18 through 22. Now when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. And a scribe came up and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. This is the word of God. You may be seated. pray as we begin. Father, I thank you that in song we could sing this morning the truths of this passage, though we may not have been aware of it. Singing that that we would leave everything behind to follow you. Singing, Lord, we'll do anything for you. God, those are weighty words. Father, singing and asking you in song that you would use our life in any way you choose. God, this is, uh, this is not something we take lightly. And I pray this morning that that would be true of us. I pray also that as, as we look to your word this morning and we hear from our Savior, Jesus Christ, that we would see the weight of what he's saying to us. Father, let your words be clear this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I think it's important this morning to begin with a little context here as we look to the Word of God. Here's a couple things we need to know about the Gospels. And when I say the Gospels, I mean Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The Gospels are not history books, though they are historically true. And they're not biographies, though they are biographically true. And they're not news reports, though they are factually true. The Gospels, including Matthew's Gospel, they're written so that we would understand that Jesus is the one that the entire Old Testament was written about. Let me show you probably one of the most important passages that helps us understand this idea. After Jesus' resurrection, he appeared to his disciples, and then he spent 40 days with them before he ascended into heaven. And during that time, during those 40 days, he taught them the significance of the previous three years of their life with Jesus, and the significance of the time they spent with him and the things that he did. Let me read to you what he says in Luke 24, verses 44 through 48. That helps us understand everything else in the Gospels. All right? Jesus says this. These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you. 
that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. All right, so that's what he says to the disciples. Don't overlook that. That is the key to understanding the Gospels. With that group of people listening to Jesus speak was Matthew. Our gospel writer, the writer of the gospel we've been studying. So, so Matthew, who lived and walked with Jesus, hears Jesus say these things. As Luke says, his mind was opened to understand the scriptures. And by scriptures, he means the Old Testament. Matthew began to understand at that moment how everything that Jesus had done and said pointed to how he fulfills the Old Testament. It makes a lot of sense then that, that, that when Matthew later sits down to write his gospel, he's thinking back to everything that Jesus did. He's thinking through the lens of what Jesus told him. Okay? After the resurrection, how Jesus fulfilled the law and the prophets and the Psalms, how everything Jesus did pointed to the fact that he was the promised one, the Messiah, the suffering servant, the king who inherits... All of creation for a kingdom. The king even of the Gentiles. That's what Matthew's remembering as he writes his gospel. And he does that led along by the Spirit. That's the understanding that he has as he writes. And so that is the, that's the understanding we're to have as we read what he's written for us. So, when we read Matthew's gospel, this is just a reminder, a refresher, When we read and study Matthew's gospel, here's what we're looking for. Not, where am I here? But, how does Jesus fulfill the Old Testament prophecies? How how does this show me who Jesus is in light of the Old Testament? And this is important for us. This is the part that we're to, to look to understand personally. How does this help me understand repentance and forgiveness of sins? Remember, that was the message that he told these disciples that they were to take out to the world. And so we have to be asking, when the disciples are writing these things about Jesus, well, where do we see repentance and forgiveness of sins here in this? Those are the the two bright, warm fires that we gather around and Read the Gospels with the light of. All right? So, so just think of you're opening God's Word, you're, you're going to see in the Gospels, you're sitting by between those two fires. And, and what you're reading is coming to light from those two ideas. The amazing thing, though, is that while the Gospel writers are accomplishing this task, showing us who Jesus is, showing us the, this Gospel message of repentance and forgiveness of sins they're also telling a story like a regular story with setting and plot 
in conflict, in action, in dialogue, in resolution. The, the Gospels are not encyclopedia entries. They tell us a story. And so we need to remember that both of those things are true as we read. In the, in the part of the story that we're studying this morning, true story, the part that we're studying this morning, you'll remember that Jesus has just finished teaching or preaching on the sermon. He's just taught this sermon on the mount, this famous sermon. He's come down the mountain. The people are there, gathered. They, they want to worship him. And this, this leper comes up to him, unclean leper. He approaches Jesus. Jesus touches him, and with the power of his word, he heals him. And then this Gentile centurion, this soldier, needs his servant healed. So Jesus heals the servant of this Gentile with his words. And Jesus and his followers make their way into Capernaum, this little seaside town at the, at the northwest end of the Sea of Galilee. And as they go into town, they go to Peter's house, and Peter's mother-in-law is sick, and Jesus heals her. And then while they're at the house, he heals all sorts of people, sick people and demon-possessed people. And people are bringing all these people to Jesus, and he's healing them. And that's where we get there at the end of last week's passage. Matthew said that this revealed that Jesus was fulfilling the Isaiah 53 prophecy. You remember that last week? That was kind of the whole point of last week's sermon. That Jesus was this suffering servant who had come to take away the sins of the world. And he showed us that through these healings. And that brings us to where we are this morning. So right after these healings, Jesus sees an even bigger crowd coming to the house. And they're gathering around. And what does he do? He doesn't heal them all. He says to his disciples, it's time to go. Get the boat ready. It's time to go. We're going to the other side of the lake. You see this happening in verse 18. Look at Matthew 8, 18 with me. When Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go to the other side. It's almost a cause and effect type of thing that Matthew wants us to see. When he sees the crowd, he gives the order. Let's go to the other side. But go to the other side. Jesus is saying we're going to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. Right? So remember, they're in Capernaum. They're at the northwest end. They're going to go to the east side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the land of the Gadarenes that we'll read about in a couple weeks. It's a Gentile area. Why would Jesus need to go there? We'll learn about that in a couple weeks. But for now, this is kind of the, the progression of the plot. Okay, Something you should notice here, and we just mentioned it, this crowd that's gathering around Jesus, they're, they're pressing in on Jesus, they're there because they've seen him heal and they've seen him cast out demons and they want more of that. They want more healings from Jesus. But they won't get it. He's not going to heal them all. He's going to leave. He's going to leave before every ache and pain in that city is healed. It's not because he doesn't love them. It's not because he doesn't have compassion on them. Because healing people is not his mission. Healing people was meant to point to the truth of who he was and who he is. Healing people was not what he came to do. He came to proclaim the gospel, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. And at the same time, he's revealing slowly, maybe, but deliberately, he's revealing he's the king. 
It's more important, it's more urgent to the mission to leave Capernaum and go across the lake to show that he is the king of the Gentiles too. Well, as we keep reading, we're getting ahead of ourselves, as we keep reading in our passage this morning, Jesus is preparing to leave doesn't really seem to bother anybody. In fact, some of them are so enamored with him, they say, we'll go with you. We'll come with you, Jesus. The scribe here in verse 19 is the first of these zealous, excited people that want to follow Jesus. A scribe is, is someone who, who would have been very well versed in scripture. Right? So a scribe just means a, a writer. He's, he's writing, he's copying texts. Sometimes these people are described as teachers of the law or religious lawyers. Point is, he knows the Bible. He's heard Jesus teach. He's seen Jesus prove his authority. And now he wants to follow Jesus out of Capernaum to wherever he's going. This seems like a, this seems like a win, right? From, from, a, from a human perspective, we, we look at this and say, okay, this is an influential person. It's landing a, a disciple like this would be roughly the equivalent of, of like a news anchor on a major news network. Right? This is a person of influence. And now he's, he wants to come to Jesus' side. He's a person who has opinions that other people respect. He can persuade other people. So from a worldly perspective, what do we say? We say, Jesus, sign him up immediately. This, this will be an ace. He's got passion. He's got influence. He's motivated. He's zealous. But what does Jesus do? Look at verse 20. Jesus, come on. Foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Jesus is trying to dissuade him from following him. He's trying to talk him out of it. If you've been paying attention in Matthew's Gospel, this is kind of Jesus' method of evangelism. Basically, tell people that following him will be difficult. He's already told us in the Beatitudes that to be his disciple will result in persecution. And people will utter all kinds of evil about us. They will lie about us. They will say things that are wicked about us that aren't true. He he told us in the Sermon on the Mount that following him will involve a ruthless pursuit of holiness and humility. That we'll have to love our enemies. That when we do good things, we won't even get credit here on this earth. He told us that we've got to give up our love of money and our desire for control. Basically, he's told us, in order to follow him, you have to renounce everything you know about being human. Then then once we're beginning to grasp that, he says, some people who think they're following him, it'll turn out, aren't following him. They'll discover on Judgment Day that they were pursuing a false Christ. That they'd been duped by some lying teacher and their whole faith was built on sand. That's Jesus' evangelism. This is not, God has a wonderful plan for your life, is it? This is not, if you follow Jesus, your marriage will be better, is it? Or if you follow Jesus, you'll be happier or you'll lose weight or your life will be easier. 
Jesus doesn't say any of those things. In fact, no one in the Bible says any of those things. All over the New Testament, book after book, chapter after chapter, all we see is this is difficult, this is hard, it requires repentance and self-denial every day. That's the Christian life. Brothers and sisters, when we present the gospel of Jesus Christ, we should follow the lead of the Bible and present it faithfully and present it accurately. Scripture is enough, I promise. Scripture is enough. The Holy Spirit will open eyes and ears and hearts with Scripture. But He won't with our add ons. Listen, no one, no one has ever become a Christian by being offered worldly good. No one. Someone becomes a Christian, a true follower of Christ, when they see that Jesus Christ is better than this world. He's better. We don't cheapen the gospel. If we're offering worldly good and calling that Christianity, and by that I mean we're telling people that Christianity is all about having fun, or it's all about belonging, or it's all about community, or it's about being successful, or healthy, or wealthy. If we're, if we're baiting the Christian hook with things that the world already considers good, and we're trying to persuade people into that sort of religion... All we're offering is a man-centered knockoff of biblical Christianity. We're offering a false hope, a false assurance. And frankly, all we've done is made it harder for them to accept the true gospel. The gospel that Jesus teaches. Our evangelistic methods... And strategies, our message must be honest. And it can be this simple. You're a sinner who is under the wrath of God, but God loved you and sent his son for you. If you're stuck and you don't know what to say, just say that. Jesus Christ, this son, has died to take upon himself your rebellion. Your rebellion. Christ has taken it. That's the good news. That's the good news message that Jesus shares with us. And if that was good enough for Jesus and the apostles, if that's good enough for the Holy Spirit, how dare any of us be so arrogant as to think we can improve on that message? There are hundreds and hundreds of roads to a better life. There's thousands of roads to a better life. We can make up new ways to a better life every day. But there is only one road to salvation. Let's share that road. There's only one way to salvation. And Jesus in this passage is going to show us he is the way to salvation. You want to look with me? Let's keep reading in the text before I go too far on my soapbox, okay? Look look carefully at how Jesus identifies himself in verse 20. 
All right, so continue with me in the text. We're in verse 20. It says, Foxes have holes, birds of the air have, of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And when Jesus calls himself the Son of Man, that's not a weird way to say that his adoptive father was a man. He's saying way more than that. This is a reference to the Son of Man that we see in Daniel chapter 7. Let me read for you from Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14. Remember, Jesus is showing us that he fulfills the prophecies of the Old Testament. He's going to do it here again. Every week he's going to do that for us. Let me read for you this prophecy. This is Daniel speaking. He says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days, that's God, and he was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. All right? So follow with me. Jesus, this suffering servant from Isaiah 53, the one who has just welcomed in this Gentile who called him Lord in our last passage. Jesus is revealing himself to also be the Son of Man, this divine king who was presented before God and given an everlasting kingdom. So he's telling this scribe in the midst of this teaching about what it means to follow him, he's telling him, I'm the Son of Man from Daniel 7. We can't miss that. Okay? Don't overlook that and just think Jesus talks funny. This is prophecy fulfilled. This is Jesus self-identifying as this promised eternal king. But we don't want to get so caught up on that that we also miss what he's saying to this, this man about following him. He's also saying that to follow him means to give up, at least for now, the security of a comfortable life. So Now, on the one hand, he's talking in spiritual terms, isn't he? Christians are people who have been delivered out of the kingdom of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of the sun. So, from the worldly kingdom to this eternal spiritual kingdom... Once you become a Christian, you become a man without a country or a woman without a country. Peter calls us elect exiles. We're citizens of another kingdom. We don't belong here. And because this world is not our home, we'll never truly feel at home here. There will always be this longing for our our true home, our true citizenship. We'll always be sojourners here. We'll always be foreigners here. Aliens, strangers. But Jesus isn't just talking spiritually. He's also talking very literally here to this man. As far as the story goes, remember this is a story. This is narrative. It's true narrative. As far as the story goes, he's about to leave Capernaum on a boat. And his plan is to do what? Sleep on the boat. And then pick up ministry when he gets to the other side of the lake. And then keep moving along from place to place to place. So he's speaking in very literal terms. I don't have a home. My ministry, my my mission is more important than the security of a home. And I'm the son of man even. The promised king. So if it's this way for me, the promised king... 
What's it going to be like for you, his servants? You following what he's getting at here? We should not expect better accommodations, better food, better transportation than the king had. Well, Matthew doesn't tell us what becomes of this guy. He doesn't tell us if he follows him or if he stays behind in Capernaum. And since Matthew doesn't say, I'm going to step out on a limb and say, well, that's not the point of the story. The point that Matthew wants us to see with this first applicant for discipleship is that Jesus is the prophesied son of man and following him is no guarantee of a comfortable life. Following Jesus is an act of faith in future promises. We we leave behind the security of the things of this world for the security of being a child of the Father. To follow Jesus means to leave behind the security of the things of this world for the security of being a child of the Father. So practically speaking, let's, let's bring this down to Del Cerro 2019. Okay? This does not mean if you have a house that you are not following Jesus. It can seem like that, can't it? You read this and go, well, either this isn't true or I'm not a disciple. You're misunderstanding it. It doesn't mean you have to sell your house though the Lord may lead you to do that. It doesn't mean don't save for retirement, though the Lord may lead you to do something else far more useful to his kingdom than play golf. It doesn't mean quit your job, though I can tell you from experience that God may call you to that. I had been offered a promotion at work when the Lord was pressing me to pursue pastoral ministry. And that you can ask my wife, but that sense of calling was so strong and present that I truly believed that if I didn't obey, that I would be in sin. What this means foundationally is that we are to hold on to the things of earth so loosely that we know that they can't be our sense of security. They they can't be. If a place to call home is your hope in this life, then Jesus isn't. If your work is your security, then Jesus isn't. If your savings account is your hope for the future, then Jesus isn't. Leave behind the security of the things of the world so you can grasp a hold of the security of being a child of the Father. If in your heart you're clinging to the security that that the world's goods provide you, repent and cling to Christ and you'll be freed up to follow him more faithfully. Listen, as we're kind of hitting our middle point here in this text, this is the, the big bright thing that we're to see here. The claims of the kingdom of Christ are absolute and immediate. It's probably more evident as we look at the second disciple. Let's watch this interaction between the second man and Jesus. Look with me at verse 21 as we move through our text. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, follow me, leave the dead to bury their own dead. 
Is this guy asking that much? All this disciple is saying is, I want to go with you to the other side. I want to follow you. But I've got something really, really, really important to do first. And it's a good thing. He's not not asking to, to go play the lottery or something that he's not asking to go to the bar he's just saying I want to go bury my father all he wants is to to bury his father and that's not too much to ask now we don't know the circumstances exactly of what's going on here right burial practices in that day are really varied there are some cases where people had to be buried within 24 hours of their death in some cases where they took days to embalm the body He could also be talking about this mourning period that usually lasted for at least a month. So if he's including the mourning period, the grieving period, after the death and burial of his father, you know, it could be anywhere from one day that he's asking for Jesus to wait to 30 days. That's one understanding of this text. Another is that the man's dad isn't even dead yet. He's just sick and he's dying. Or maybe even he's just elderly. And the disciple wants to to see his father to the grave. He wants to be the one who's there for his family. As the son, he wants to take responsibility of caring for his family in his father's last days. This isn't asking a lot. So he could also be saying to Jesus, I'll catch up with you in a couple years. But I've got to take care of the home front first. Anyway, from one day to a few years, it's, it's not the point. Again, Matthew doesn't give us the details, so they must not be important. Whether he's telling Jesus he's going to follow him in a few days or a few years, it doesn't matter. Jesus is telling him, whatever that is, give it up to follow him. Give up that responsibility. Give up that privilege, even, in order to follow him now. There's a couple things that are interesting to observe here. Just as you look at the text When I study a text, I just write down a lot lot of observations and a couple that are worth sharing. The first is that, remember, Jesus is in town healing all these people, and this man's father has either died or he's dying, and Jesus doesn't heal him. He doesn't raise him from the dead. Instead, he makes a point to tell this son, let those who have no interest in me bury your dad. That's what he means by let the dead bury the dead. Let the spiritually dead, those who have no interest in Christ, let them bury those who have already died. Again, there are, there are two sides here. There's a spiritual side to this that, that we can bring all the way to today. And there's a very literal side. As far as the story goes, the literal part of the story, Jesus literally cannot wait around. From a narrative perspective, Jesus has got to be in Jerusalem by the end of the book. Right? He's got to be there for his battle with Satan, sin, and death. He's got to go to the cross. That's his mission, ultimately. So there's no waiting around. He's got to keep moving. The disciples are already, at that moment, getting the boat ready. He's he's commanded them to go down the boat to get it ready. That's what they're doing. And all these people are kind of the tagalongs that he's dissuading. Go away, go away, I'm leaving. He can't wait around to deal with this guy's family matters. So that's the kind of bookish sense. But spiritually, Matthew has included this because he wants us to see that there is nothing 
more important than following Jesus. Nothing. Not even good things. Uh, Things like family and work and home. Nothing is more important than living in obedience to Christ. The claims of Christ are absolute. When you follow Christ, he gets everything. He gets all of who you are. And here's where this this matters in our lives. If you're a Christian, then you need to see this. Jesus is asking this man to follow him instead of burying his father. For Jews in those days, burying your father took precedence over everything else. Honoring your parents through burial was a major, major part of their culture, a part of Jewish life. And yet Jesus is teaching that even something that culturally significant, that emotionally weighty, it does not come before following him. So if that's the case, then there is absolutely nothing that comes before following Christ. No vacation. No ball game, no birthday party, no wedding, no funeral, not your kids, not your education, not your work, not your entertainment, not your rest or your relaxation, and certainly not your safety. Nothing is to come before your obedience to Christ. The claims of Christ in your life are absolutely absolute. Think about the context here. Think about the people that that Matthew is is showing us here. These are people who were seeking to follow Jesus while he walked on the earth. That means to follow him, they had to physically leave their homes and their families. They had to leave their jobs. They had to leave their reputations behind to follow Jesus. We're in a different time though, aren't we? Christ has died, he's risen, he has sent his spirit to be present with us. Rather than being required to physically follow Christ around, he's told us, I'll be with you always. So it's kind of flipped. He's with us wherever we go. Add to that, that in our American context, we have the gift of religious freedom. Because of the spread of Christianity throughout the Western world, ideas like the value and dignity of human life, those are foundational to our government. We've created ideas like like rights and sewn that into the fabric of who we are as a nation. So not only do we have the spirit wherever we go, but we also have the privilege of living in a free society where we have to give up very, very little physically in order to follow Christ. Have you seen the difference between us and these guys? We're not under any threat of persecution, really. I mean, come on. We're not going to be thrown into jail for having a Bible study in our homes. It's far easier even to be a Christian now than it here than it is has been in any time in history. At least from a worldly perspective, spiritually I think we're under far more attack than we realize because of our comfort but, but even with that even with those truths, even with the ease at least from a worldly perspective of following Jesus 
we find it incredibly, incredibly difficult just to worship him, don't we? Let alone actually doing something difficult to follow him. Listen, hardly any of us are being asked to give up burying our parents to follow Jesus. I've never met anyone who has asked that. But Jesus is calling us to follow him intently. He's calling us to follow him deliberately. He's calling us to follow him wholeheartedly. And because that's so relatively easy to do in our context, I think we just assume, well, that there should be no sacrifice to this. Because it's been easy so far. That's a lie. It's not true. If you don't think, if you don't think that there's anything that you should have to give up to follow Christ, you're just not following him. Obedience to Christ will, 100% of the time, obedience to Christ will require giving up some of the good things that are precious to you. And the more you get to know him, the more you read and study the word, the more time you spend devoted to Christ, hearing from him, the more he'll reveal to you those things to leave behind. But as you do that, you know what you'll find? Jesus is better. It's worth it. Jesus is better. Claims that the kingdom of Christ are absolute, but they're absolutely good. The claims of the kingdom, though, are also immediate. There's an urgency to following Christ. There is a moment of crisis, a moment of decision. And this is especially important for those of you who are not Christians. If you're someone who is considering the truths of Christianity, you're, you're mulling over them, you're, you're weighing in your mind the truths that have been revealed to you, and yet you haven't yet committed to following Christ, in other words, you believe but you haven't repented, listen, you're not promised tomorrow. Until you repent and follow Christ, you have not received him. I want to tell you, though, I appreciate that whoever you are, you're weighing these things carefully. That's very good. That tells me you understand that there's a cost to following Jesus. You understand something that many Christians don't understand. You understand that there will be aspects of your life, things that define you, that you must give up to follow Christ. So you're understanding then, if my work is my everything, my work has to take a back seat to Jesus. If my family is my everything, my family has to take a back seat to Jesus. You, you also probably know that you'll also have to give up your cherished sins. If right now you enjoy the freedom of sex with people you are not married to, you will have to leave that lifestyle behind to follow Jesus. If you're actively pursuing homosexual relationships, you will have to abandon those relationships to follow Jesus. If your work involves being dishonest with people, you'll have to abandon your work to follow Jesus. These things are not easy. This will be revolutionary for your life. Let me add, though. Let me put a little more weight on your basket. Before you make this decision, you should know it's going to mean leaving behind even more. Okay? 
Jesus is going to ask you for more. Remember, the claims of Christ are absolute on your life. He's going to ask you to give up gossip and slander and anger and malice and dishonesty. He's going to ask you to leave behind jealousy and materialism and filthy talk and trashy movies and pornographic books and drunkenness and gluttony and laziness and sleeping in on Sundays. He's going to take away your selfishness. He's going to take your individualism. He's going to take your privacy and your self-sufficiency. Claims of Christ are absolute. You have nothing left. All you have is Christ. If you're concerned that following Jesus means your life will have to change, listen, you're right. And then, even then, even once you begin to follow him, even once you make the decision to repent and be baptized and follow him, every day after that, he's going to be calling you to repentance. To repent and follow him every day. To leave behind the things of this world that make you feel important and powerful and loved and accepted to follow him. Following Jesus means giving up all of that. But can I just tell you that once you repent and receive the forgiveness that he offers you, something happens. The Holy Spirit changes your desires. Those things that right now taste so sweet to you, when you have Jesus, they they would be bitter. You want to spit them out. Because the things of the Lord will become more desirable to you. It's worth it to exchange the temporal for the eternal. To give up the sense of security and control that you have right now over your life to follow Christ. It's worth it. This life will be harder. It will. If your life has not gotten harder because you're following Christ, read your Bible. This life will be harder, but you'll have a peace that surpasses understanding and a contentment in Christ that is greater than you can possibly imagine right now. There is rest for your soul in Christ because there is hope with Christ that you don't have right now. The decision to follow Christ is a hard decision and there's a lot to think about, but but listen, Because the claims of Christ are immediate, this is urgent. This is urgent. If you're waiting for repentance to be easy, you will be waiting forever. We sang this morning, if you tarry till you're able, able, you will never come at all. You know what that means? It's not modern English, but but it has deep meaning to it. That means if you try and clean up your life before you come to Christ, you'll never come to Christ. He's calling you now. Repent and follow him now. All of those things you're thinking you'll have to change, they will change once you repent of their worthlessness compared to Christ. Jesus takes your old life to the cross with him. Let him. Don't delay. Don't delay any longer. After worship this morning, I'm going to be at the back door. And I would love to talk to you about this. Because I know that Christ is calling you. 
want to work with you through this. If you don't want to meet me at the back door, Josh and Sarah will be blocking that door. All right? <laughs> they, they'll be up here up front and they're not blocking the door. But they want to talk to you. I know I can be intimidating. They're not. Look at them. Raise your, <laughs> raise your hand, Josh and Sarah. This is Josh and Sarah. They will be up front ready to hear the questions that you have, ready to hear what you're holding on to. I'll be at the back door. If you came with someone, they invited you to church today, talk to them. They love you enough to share Christ with you. They want you to know the hope that they have. So talk to them. All right? This is a sincere invitation. Let's pray.